Amen. Let's open our Bibles and go to Exodus chapter 30. And I want to minister to you for a little while about understanding the anointing. Understanding the anointing. The second book of the Bible, Exodus 30. I'm going to begin reading with verse number 22. Moreover, the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take thou also unto thee principal spices of pure myrrh, 500 shekels, sweet cinnamon, half so much, even 250 shekels, and of sweet calamus, 250, and of cassia, and of olive oil, and thou shalt make it an oil of holy ointment, an ointment compound or made after the art of the apothecary, that's perfumery, and it shall be a holy anointing oil. Thou shalt anoint the tabernacle of the congregation therewith and the ark of the testimony. You can see in the following verses, it notes other things. I want to add with this verse, just in quoting it, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 21. Now, he who establishes us and anoints us with you in Christ is God. All of us are anointed. Every Christian is anointed. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, for a few moments as we look into the scriptures, I need you to give all of the folks ears to hear what we have to say. I pray, God, that you help me to minister this word clearly. God, I pray that you help me to clarify anything that may be somewhat complex. Thank you for so loving this world that you gave your only begotten son. Thank you that his death on the cross brought salvation and deliverance to each one of us, through whom we're able to minister the same to those with whom we come into contact. For these things we do pray in Jesus' name, and everyone says, Amen. The book of Exodus records Israel's deliverance from Egypt. And you have probably taken the time to read where, in coming out of Egypt, the first thing that happened, they had to confront that Red Sea. But once the Lord parted the waters, the scripture says they were so excited that Miriam led them in a song, and they began to praise God. From there, they encountered bitter water. Moses walked over to a tree, cut it down, tossed it in the pond, and then they had sweet water. The scripture says they murmured and complained against the man of God. They were getting hungry. God supplied manna and quail meat out there in the wilderness. It goes on to tell us that the Lord immediately gave them commands, gave them the word of God, the precepts and statutes. Then afterwards, he called Moses to the top of the mountain, and he revealed to him the pattern of what the tabernacle should look like. So in Israel's initial wanderings, 
These all prefigure the believer's steps in that pathway to life. When we were in sin and in sorrow, we were in bondage and affliction, but we heard the gospel and we were delivered and we came out of sin. God gave us a song. We started praising him, glorifying him. At every, every event and occurrence where we met with bitterness, we could always look to Calvary. That's the tree that makes everything better. Doesn't matter what occurs in this world, you consider what Christ has done for you. And let's never forget that in all of our Christian journeys, the Lord provides provision and he supplies for our need. And this he does for us even when we don't believe as we should. This he did for Israel for four decades as they lived in the wilderness. But God gave us the word and he wants us to meditate on the word because if he can't change our minds, he can't change our lifestyles. But if he can change how we think, he can change how we live. So the Lord is very interested in us understanding the pattern of the house, to understand the tabernacle, why this house is important to him. Because this is where the glory of God descends. The construction of the tabernacle was given to Moses in a revelation or in a vision. Chapters 25 through 30. But it's in verses chapters 35 through 40 that Moses comes down from the mountain and explains what he saw up in the glory. He explains it to the children of Israel. And when they hear about it, it's at that point they begin to learn how important all of these items are to God. Now, we know that oil was a necessity. We just read the passage. The application of the oil is what made everything holy. Even after they had built the different items and furniture, somebody could have sat around and said, look, the altar is finished. Let's begin to offer sacrifices. But none of it could be put to use until the oil had been applied. Once the oil had been applied, it was now sanctified and it was set apart and fit for the master's use. So God gave Moses the instruction on how to make it. And then you can see that as a precious substance, it was called holy oil. Why holy? Because it's different. It's unique. You only place it upon those things that are going to be set, set apart for holy and noble purposes. He says to Moses in verse 23, you go out and gather these principal spices. Now, he didn't tell the elders of Israel to do this. He didn't tell any renowned princes of the tribes to do this. But Moses himself has to go out there into that wilderness and find all of these different spices that are that are growing throughout that desert. He's got to dig them up and he then himself has got to prepare this. Is labor involved with this? And the scripture is fairly plain in verse 25. Moses is to make this holy oil. It is only to be applied to the paraphernalia that's associated with the house of God. Don't put it on anybody. Don't put it on anything that's not attached to this tabernacle. Don't put it on anybody or anything that's not connected with this holy work. Don't send a messenger or a runner back to Egypt. And send for Pharaoh's favorite singer. 
I don't care how good he sings. Don't bring him into the outer court and have him sing all of the Pharaoh's favorite country eastern songs. Don't put this oil on him. Don't give it to a Philistine. Don't give it to a Hittite. This is restricted for the priesthood and for the vessels that are going to be in the house of God. That's what he's saying here in looking at this. Now, the oil does not protect from corruption and decay. Even though the Ark of the Covenant was made of a, of a satia wood and overlaid with gold, eventually it get old. And so a Christian can be anointed you know, by God, but still have bad attitudes, still have a problem with anger, still show flaws and defects. But Moses, in verses 26 through 28, is to anoint the items himself. Do not pass it along to somebody else. But it says in verses 32 through 33, do not replicate this recipe for any other purposes. Now, why does he say that? He knows that the existence of a carnal mind will lead men and women to try to duplicate this and then try to use it for their own personal and private uses. It's only for the house of God. It's not for any other reason. Don't use it as a body lotion. Don't try to use it as a balm for healing your personal infirmities. This is restricted for the tabernacle. Can you say amen? So we don't make an extra copy of this for our own tent. We don't take these vessels back to our own home and dwelling and use it for our own food purposes. We don't loan them out to the, to the Hittites or any Assyrians or anybody who happens to be running low on supplies in their own worship services. This is strictly for God. And this is what he's saying. Now, we know that people will try to duplicate this. We've seen this over and over again. People try to perpetuate holiness in something that isn't holy. And when that occurs, it brings about mass deception. I still recall back when I started preaching in the 80s, there was a gentleman had a tent. And this man, he would have people, they would, they would stand at the back tent flaps and they would watch folks as they came in. And if there was somebody that was feeble, they'd give them crutches. If there was somebody that wasn't feeling well, they'd put them in a wheelchair, put them in a certain section, had a little notepad. Where are you from? What's your problem? So on and so forth. Then with the information gathered, they had some kind of a little microphone and they passed that info to somebody and other persons that were in a trailer behind the tent, number of feet away. And that preacher get up there in the middle of the service and then he would begin to call out sicknesses and diseases like people were being healed and he had an earpiece in his ear, and the people in the trailer were telling him, so-and-so, seat number three, row number five, red dress. This is their issue. This is where they're coming from. And when the whole thing fell apart, and they found out he was a fraud, and they put him in jail, people came to realize, you can try to duplicate this anointing. There will always be people who will try to fabricate the false, in order to try to copy the real. There's no doubt that the power of God is a reality. But there are always those who cannot produce it, who are looking for ways to bring it about in some other particular fashion. So years ago, I used to collect these ministry letters, you know, these, 
different churches and ministries would send out these uh, giving letters. And, and so I, I'd read them and I'd collect them. And of course, after a while, Tiffany just told me I need to really stop doing that because my blood pressure was going up too high uh, as I read that stuff. But, but I can recall a couple of those letters because I still have them somewhere in my, my little archive. But one of them had, if they had sent in the envelope some little crystals. And with those crystals, there was, there was a little plastic thing covering them up. And they said, now, if you want to be healed, you take these crystals out. And when you make your bath water, you drop them in. And said, they'll dissolve. They'll produce a color and a certain aroma and fragrance. And when you sit down in that bath water and just relax, said, healing is going to come to you. Healing is going to come to you. Well, there was another gentleman years before that who sent out his uh, letter to his mailing list. And he had sent out a little packet of meal or flour. And, and he told everybody on that list, mail this back to me with an offering. And said, my wife and I are going to bring all that flour together and we're going to bake a cake. I'm telling that would have been the biggest cake in America. And, and he said, we're going to eat that cake. Now, I think of stuff like that. And in my mind, I'm thinking, at best... That is superstition. At worst, it's witchcraft in the church. Do you hear me? The kind of deception that people will bring others into because they're trying to duplicate this holy oil. This anointing is real and it is true. As a Christian, then, the tabernacle is a pattern representing God at work amongst his priesthood. The anointing is not a marketable commodity. But it does picture the kingdom of God. You say, Pastor, what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God in a life that is fully yielded to Jesus Christ and under the governance and control of the mighty Holy Ghost. So to go from the natural to the spiritual, Hebrews chapter 9 tells us that we ourselves have become the house of God. Christ is the priest of a better tabernacle. It says that in Hebrews 9 verse 11. So understandably, we have a better name. We have a better priest. We have a better sacrifice. We have a better testament. The book of Hebrews is all about what is better. So since we're the house of God now, your body, like mine, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. God comes to take up residence in you so that the glory of God can be manifested through you. Your life is limited and restricted to who he is. This is why we have to be careful about what we get ourselves involved with. The Bible says not to be unequally yoked. What fellowship does light have with darkness? There are a lot of people who, when they become Christian, certain types of employment they have to move away from. I can't tell you the number of bartenders I've led to the Lord who, on their own, without me ever saying anything, make the decision, I need to have another job. I don't need to be mixing drinks for people. Husbands and wives, moms and dads come into a saloon at night, drinking up the money that ought to go to the kids for clothing and ought to go for food. But yet they spend their time in a bar. And I mean, they pass the years staring at the bottom of an empty glass or bottle. You think of how many lives have been wrecked. But once a person comes to know God, 
comes to have a relationship with God. The Lord can then take that life, redirect it in paths of righteousness, helping them to see you're the house of God now. I dwell inside of you. Now look at Luke chapter 4 and listen to what Jesus says when he goes into the church house of the Jews. We're talking about understanding the anointing. So he says in verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Well, he's citing Isaiah chapter 61, a prophet who lived eight centuries before Jesus is standing here reading this. What is the gospel? The good news, the glad tidings. Who are the poor? What is the poor? What is poverty? Any area of your life where you find impoverishment, the gospel can help you in that area. We can be poor in health. We need the gospel. We can be financially poor. We need the gospel. We can be emotionally poor. We need the gospel. You say, Pastor, how would the gospel help anybody with their finances? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Think of how much money you saved. You became a Christian. Oh, my goodness. You remember your days out there before you came to know the Lord? I mean, you could go here and there. There was karaoke night. You could look, and I'm telling you, you could see Tina out there lion dancing with all these different people, having the time of her life. And somebody would then yell out, drinks are on the house. And before you know it, somebody's spending a whole lot of money. Look at how much money you saved when you became a Christian. Thousands of dollars you spent on Marlboro, Newport Lights, all of these things. But now God has changed your life. And because of that, you are able to give back to him a portion of what he's given to you. He only says he wants 10 percent. When so many others were living paycheck to paycheck and giving the devil 95% of that check. Preach the gospel to the poor. Jesus continues. He said, he sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Who's a brokenhearted person? Somebody that's suffering through a lot of difficulties and problems. Someone who's lost a loved one. Someone whose life has been wounded. And only the gospel is able to provide that healing. Do you realize there are some things that, you know, you can say to people that you think are comforting, but really not comforting at all? There are some situations that only the Holy Spirit can involve himself in and bring about liberty and bring about blessing. I can promise you that. Yeah. So when the scripture says that the gospel will heal the brokenhearted, it's true. When it says we should preach deliverance to the captives, it's true. People that are in bondage, people that are in prison. Now, Hastings, years ago, used to have a prison up there, had 180 or so uh, residents in that prison. And I remember going up there every week. I believe it was a, a Monday night. I used to go up there to preach before they shut her down. Well, when I first went up there, I didn't know what was going to happen. They had, I think, Campus Crusade, Chuck Colson's Prison Fellowship. They were all in that prison, but none of them had a Bible study with more than six or seven people. So I went up there and told them I wanted to minister in there. They did their background check. They said, okay, you can come at 7 p.m. 
We set it up, walked into that prison, and I'm telling when them doors shut, I knew I'm, I'm in there. I've got to have something to say to these folks because this was not one of these, these uh, prisons that was like a juvenile delinquent place. We had murderers in there, rapists and every other kind of thing you could think of. And so when I got in there, they put me on the second floor, gave me a little small room, and they said, one hour, you can be here. So I was in there putting stuff on a little whiteboard, and I heard them come across that loudspeaker. Seven o'clock, room so-and-so, Bible study with Pastor Darrell. You're all invited. So I stood on the inside waiting for people to come in. I watched as they walked back and forth, looked in, and then they kept going. Then they send somebody else, look in, then they keep on walking. I realized after four or five minutes or so, these folks aren't coming in here. So I decided I'll just go right on out there and preach in the hallway. So I went outside in the hallway and I said, if you folks are not going to come and listen to me preach in a room, I'm staying right out here and preach the gospel. And I did. I launched out into preaching. And one by one, I had people start wandering into that little classroom. So I went in there and told them my story, my testimony. I told them, I said, look, first time I went to jail, I was eight years of age. Said the next time I went, I was preaching the gospel. Told them how I became a Christian as a young man started preaching as a teenager. So they're listening. God's touching hearts. Lots of people are coming out. That thing grew and developed. They said, we've got to put you in the basement. We had 60 or 70 or more. They were coming and and they were listening. All of these folks had their lives being revived. The Lord was restoring people. There were folks that had been raised in church, had walked away from God. Because serving God didn't put them in there. Serving the devil put them in that place. And they were giving their hearts to the Lord. I would see them under conviction, weeping and crying. Several months later, they said, we've got to move you out of the basement, put you up in the cafeteria. We now had about 130 people that were coming to that, that Bible study. They were having to finish up dinner or supper to hurry up and let us get ready for the Bible study. So I'd get up and I'd preach and I'd see these folks excited. They'd sit on the edge of their seats wanting to hear the word of God. The power of God fell in that place. I remember one night laid hands on 10 people, seven of them got the baptism of the Holy Ghost immediately and the other ones got filled with the Holy Spirit later on throughout the rest of the week. Some laying in bed, some in the hallways. And so one night... I'm leaving. And they said to me, Brother Daryl, can you pray for us? I said, what's going on? They said, you don't know, but, you know, when you leave here, these, some of these guys are just they're doing unspeakable things to us. Now, you've got to understand, our, our meetings there changed the culture of the prison. So you had a lot of these gang members and stuff that would, that would sexually abuse these folks that were in that prison. And so they hated the fact that I was up there preaching and lives were being changed. So one night I went up there and, and I had my message all prepared. I'm in that, that cafeteria. All the folks are there. And right about the time when I'm about to start, that's when these gang members with their little colors and stuff come in there and they all stood up against the wall like this trying to intimidate me. And I could see that the prisoners were getting restless because they're looking around because these folks have been trying to tell them not to come out to the meetings. So whatever I had to preach that night, I can tell you, I walked away from them notes and I decided I was going to preach on hell. 
And that's what I did. I'm telling you, I painted the picture vividly. I shook them over hell like I was hanging them with a dirty, rotten stick. And I mean, they listened to what I had to say. And by the time I was done, I said, we're not going to be begging anybody to get saved. But if you're here tonight and you want to become a Christian, get that hand in the air. And I watched one gang member after another stick that hand up in the air as God began to save. I'm telling you, folks, when the scripture says the gospel will bring deliverance to the captives, there's no doubt about it. That's exactly what the Lord means. And the scripture goes on to say recovery of sight to the blind. Look at how many blind people there are in this world. And when I say blind, I mean cannot see the light of the gospel, incapable of perceiving the truth of righteousness. They stumble from one error to the next in the darkness in which they live. And it's a, you just wonder, how is it that they can never arrive at truth? It's because they're blind to it. And the scripture says, if our gospel be hid, it is hid to those whose eyes have been blinded by the devil. That's what Paul says. There's no doubt about it. So we come to set at liberty them that are bruised. Think of how many homes you drove past or walked past tonight in order to get to this place of fellowship. Think about how many broken homes you drove past. How many young people and teenagers are behind closed doors praying, saying, God, if you're even real, could you help my mom and dad's marriage? Oh, God, if you're real, could you save me out of this situation? I'm tired of having to get up and dress myself to go to school because mom and dad are on drugs. Folks, there's a a lot of bruised people that are out here. I had one time got a phone call in Red Cloud. They said, could you please come down uh, to your church property? We've got a problem down here. So I make my way to the south end of town, and sure enough, Here's a lady who's had been used and abused by all of these meth addicts and people like that. She's running around our church property, not a stitch of clothing on her. And now here's the sheriff and them having to arrest her because she had been going up and down the country roads, opening up the gates, letting all of the horses free. She said God told her to set the animals free. So here I am. I go into that jail and I sit down with her. She's telling me this whole story and everything. But I look back at that and I ask myself, how many bruised people are there in this region that are just like that? All up and down this valley, folks, there are folks whose lives have been broken through fornication, broken through bad marriages, broken because of, you know, systemic problems in their life from one generation to the next. Nobody has ever worked. It's just one problem after another. And Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel. The gospel changes lives. Now look at Mark chapter 16. So we understand that Jesus wanted to see a continuance of his ministry. So in Mark chapter 16, verses 15 through 18, you can see it there. It says, these signs will follow those that believe. In my name, they'll cast out devils. They'll speak with new tongues. They'll take up serpents. If they drink any deadly thing, it will not hurt them. They'll lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Now, every one of these signs but one are mentioned in the book of Acts. 
In chapter 16, Paul cast the devil out of a girl who was filled with a spirit of divination. You can see in chapter 2, 10, 19, where people began to speak with other languages. You can see in chapter 28 where Paul was gathering sticks for a fire. And as he picked up a load of sticks, there was a snake that attached itself to him. And he shook it off in the fire. And that same chapter tells about the people coming to him on the island and he laid hands on them. They began to recover. You say, well, what about where it says if they drink any deadly thing? In 2 Kings, you'll find on two occasions that Elisha was able to bring healing where he found in a spring of water. There was death that was going throughout the village. And they said, man of God, there's death on every side here. He said, bring me some salt. He put that salt in the spring. It produced healing. Later on, he was sitting with his sons of the prophets and they were eating something. And in that pot, there was enough death in there to kill everybody that tried to sip on that. But yet he again was able to add something to the meal. And all of a sudden life came. Over and over, God has demonstrated that by his power, he's able to preserve and he's able to keep us. You say, Pastor, have you ever seen God deal with a demon-possessed person? Have you ever seen a demon, fully demon-possessed person? I've seen many of them. I've had to deal with them in Sunday services sometimes. One time I was traveling and preaching. A friend of mine had picked me up from the hotel in his little pickup truck. We pulled into the parking lot about maybe, oh, I'd say a tenth of a mile from where the church was. It was just that much space between the parking lot and the door. And when we, we pulled up, I saw a young girl running towards that truck. Oh, my goodness. She was running, and she was yelling. You could see it. And, and the pastor, he just kind of slunk down in that front seat, put his head on that steering wheel and said words to this effect. Oh, I don't feel like dealing with this right now. So I knew this was an ongoing problem. Well, sure enough, she came to his side and was saying, I need deliverance. Can you please help me? I need deliverance. Can you please help me? And, and he didn't even open the door. So I had my door open. She came running around to where I was. She said, are you, are you the speaker today? Are you the speaker? I said, I'm the speaker. She said, I need deliverance. Can you help me? Can you pray for me? I said, well, I said, are you going to be in the service? And I mean, she was all skittish and jumpy. She said, yeah. I said, I'll pray for you after I'm done preaching. Well, I got into that service, got up in the pulpit. It was hard to minister because she was up and down the aisles, up along the wall, couldn't keep still. It was a distraction to the people in there, but I knew they had been dealing with her for some time. She was a prostitute and her pimp kept her filled with drugs and she was just full of the devil, unclean spirit. And so here we are now, I'm preaching the gospel. She's going back and forth with all of this. And finally, when I got to the end of that message, this was Sunday morning. Visitors are there. This isn't supposed to happen on Sunday morning. And so I called for her. I said, come on down. We're going to pray for you. Well, she came down and she's just trying to stand there. And she's just shaking and doing all of this. And uh, she told me a little bit about her story, the pastor gave me a little bit of information. I said, I want you to shout the name of Jesus as loud as you can. She couldn't do it. It just came out like, Jesus, Jesus. They wouldn't even let her talk. And so the whole congregation was staring at me and sitting in quietness just like you are. 
So I reached out to put my hands on it to pray for it. She just crumpled to the ground, fell down there. I called for some ladies. They stood around her and began to pray, asking God to bring deliverance to this lady. And after a few moments, I got down and put my hands on her. I said, in the name of Jesus Christ, you unclean spirit, come out of her right now. Sunday morning, in front of the visitors. You like that for your first time in the church. I stood her up, had her on her knees. I said, I want you to shout Jesus as loud as you can. Now, it came roaring out of her and she fell over on her back and God saved her and changed the whole complexion of that service. Think of that. Yeah, it's amazing the things that that take place. I, I preached one time on a Sunday morning in Red Cloud. I don't even think I got to the message. But I just finished, or I was in the middle of a series on dominion over demons, devils, and the Satan or something I was dealing with. But I told the folks, I said, you know, the name of Jesus, that's the powerful name. Got them folks down there for an altar call, and we were just standing around there. Somebody fell out having epileptic seizure right there. Had nurses in the church, so I said, you folks just stand by and got down there. I said, we're going to shout the name of Jesus. And I said, when we, when we get to Jesus, I want you to hang up on the Jesus and shout it loud. And I said, in the name of, and everybody shouted, Jesus. And then I'm telling just in a few seconds, peace came. Told them nurses, take her to the back. Just kind of check on her. Never had another seizure that I know of, you see. We've got a lot of stories like that where the power of God comes and deals with people. You say, why don't we see more of that? Folks, I'm not looking to see that in here, okay? I don't want a whole lot of demon-possessed people showing up in here, but I do want you to know if the devil, if the devil comes and sticks his head in here, we've got power that's greater than his. There's no doubt about that. We've got power that's greater than his. So as Christians, then, we want the glory of God to manifest in the house of God. We want it to manifest in us and through us. So we don't have to be intimidated by territories. Some people are just fascinated with what spirit they think is controlling an area. And I've heard them say, oh, my goodness, don't you know how dangerous it is around here? I mean, the heavens are brass out here in the heartland. You can't build anything out here. That was, the, that was the attitude when Tiffany and I first came out here 22, 23 years ago next, uh, in March. And, and so in preaching the gospel, I knew that 1 Corinthians 1.18 says the preaching of the cross is the power of God. If you preach Christ, it doesn't matter where you are on this earth. You can change that culture. You can change that environment. We, we used to do ministers' gatherings monthly ministers gatherings and we'd have anywhere from 30 to 60 sometimes different preachers and and we just gather out in Hartwell just a little spot on the road and there's nothing there but just a little church but we'd go there and I'd preach to to these ministers and then afterwards we'd have a good fellowship meal and have a wonderful time because I was looking for those who were not plugged into a denomination but yet still needed some fellowship and wanted to be encouraged. So many independent pastors that I met were disheartened. They were sad, had been badly bruised by their congregation, or just had other things that 
maybe they were discouraged about. But here we were preaching our revivals for different churches and God was moving. We were just having a wonderful time. And so one lady was so discouraged by what was going on. She, she called me one day from Beatrice and said, Brother Daryl, I just want to tell you, I'm turning away from this pastoring. I'm giving you our building and our congregation. Just, just like that. So here we are. We, we got a building now. And, and got three or four people. So Tiffany and I decided, well, let's go over there and survey it. Because we hadn't made a decision what we were going to do. Because we were right in the process of coming here. This was the same month that we were coming here to start in, in April. in I think uh, 2000 is when we first came out here. So we made the drive to Beatrice, got to this church, walked through, opened up the doors, walked into the foyer, looked around. There had to be 200 dead flies all over the floor. Walked into the sanctuary, looked at the pews up and down the aisle, dead flies everywhere. Went into the bathrooms. I mean, the stench of urine was everywhere. And those people were there in that church, the handful that was left. I told my wife, After walking around, I said, we're amongst the dead. We're amongst the dead. Anybody that doesn't care enough to look after the place where they worship, we're amongst the dead. So I met with the folks. I said, look, we're in the process of starting something over in uh, Hebron. I said, I'll preach six months. I'll give you six months. We'll preach the gospel to you. And I mean, they looked so sad, rejected, dejected, depressed. But when we cranked up them Sunday night meetings, Tuesday, everything started changing. See, everything started changing. You, you, you could see now there's pep and people step. They, they can't wait to come out to church now. Them altar calls started getting good. More people were coming out. One farmer was so excited, he didn't know what to do. He brought my wife and I some, some milk straight out the cow. I mean, didn't even bother to, to, to clean it up or nothing, just brought it straight to us. You know, I handed that to Tiffany. Tiffany just looked at that like, what are we going to do with this here? <laughs> well, what are we going to do with this? Now, you know, cream formed at the top of it and all of that. Well, I felt led to get on radio. So I went to the Beatrice radio station and, and I made an appointment to meet with the manager. It was a, a nice lady. And she sat me down in her office and said, now, what what, what do you want to do? I said, I'd just like a program to be able to preach Christ. She said, well, who are you and what are you doing here? So I told her the story of how God brought me from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, up here on the invitation, preaching over in Plymouth. And one thing led to another. And here I am. So by the time I got to the end of giving her the testimony, she was sitting there in tears. And she said, "Okay, you not only can have the time on the station, you don't even have to pay for it. So that six month period that we were preaching in Beatrice, it did not cost us one dime. I'm telling you, those Mennonites were showing up from everywhere. Coming out there on Sunday night and Tuesday to hear us minister the word of God. But here's my point. Other people were saying how terrible the situation is and God won't do anything. But we were never intimidated by the environment. If you come with the gospel, you can change people. And once you change people, you can change 
the situation. Can you say amen? There's no doubt about it at all. And then we came here and started over in that little building over there preaching. First service and just I think me, Tiff, Kenny Hobelman, Kathy, and I think that's all that we had when we started that first time. But all through the years, the number of people that have come through this church and through other churches preaching Christ and telling folks about the king. Well, let me start winding down. Sometimes people ask the question, why don't we see the kinds of things in the Bible and the kinds of things like you're describing in your stories? Why don't we see them much more often, and I have to tell people, because we have to pay the price. See, God's not going to talk to you and me during commercials. And God's not going to talk to you when you're climbing in and out of the bleachers. Somebody's going to have to turn the plate down and decide they want to fast and pray and get close to God. Somebody's going to have to be determined to have a relationship with him where they're restricted for his use and cry out to God. Because God makes a man or woman at an altar. Somebody's got to pray through. Somebody's got to talk to the king. Somebody's got to lay before God so that his presence will leave them undone. You see, we watch people today when folks feel like they're under the power, they fall backwards. But I'm telling you, when the glory of God fell on that tabernacle, people fell forward and they lay down on their face before God. Said, oh, God, have mercy on me, Lord. Your presence, your power. How can we release this life and release this power in our life? I'm going to give you four things real quickly. Number one, be moved with compassion. Ask God to give you a love for people. If you have, a, if you have an aversion to, uh, to old people, elderly people, you're never going to reach out to them. You're never going to see miracles amongst them. So God has to enlarge your heart so that you'll be able to reach these kinds of folks. The scripture says in Matthew 9, 36, Jesus looked at the multitudes and he was moved with compassion. You have to have compassion on people. The second thing, learn to live with a spirit of faith. Second Corinthians 4, 13, we have the same spirit of faith. Believe and trust that the God of Paul and Peter is also the God of Angie and the God of Zeke. Got to believe that. Hold on to the word of God. Don't be discouraged, but know that if God puts it on your heart to take a bag of groceries to somebody's house, you can easily put it off and you can say, well, Lord, I'm busy today. Now it's not a, not a good time. But God, if he really wants you to do it, he's going to keep bothering you about that. He's going to keep messing with you. And then whether it's after three days or after a week and a half or after three weeks, there'll come a point in your life where there's going to be a manifestation, a big burst of faith inside your bosom. And then you're going to realize now is the time I've got to do it. And you're going to make time. You're going to head to the grocery store, get you a cart, fill it up. And you're saying, I'm going to their house. I'm going to see what's going to happen. You yield to that. You'll never know what God will do. Sometimes you take a bag of groceries or make a meal for somebody that presents a bridge and you can cross over to them. They can cross over to you and you can minister to them now who might even be broken hearted. They'd never open up to you had you not taken the time to believe that God had sent you. So the first thing, be moved with compassion. Number two, make sure that you're possessed of a spirit of faith. Number three, use your hands and your mouth. Tell your story. 
Tell people about why Jesus means so much to you. Because if you can't tell your story and convince me or somebody else that you believe in Jesus in your life, how are you going to convince somebody else they need him? Use your mouth, you see. Tell folks about how important he is and the change it's made in your family. Sometimes they need to know what you were like, what your family was like before Jesus came, so they can appreciate what you are like with Jesus in your life now. And then use your hands. Use your hands. When you embrace people. I'm I'm a very touchy, affectionate person. I like to hold little kids, and when I hold them, I'm praying, oh, God, bless this person. I love to do that because I think that's scriptural. Don't be like Jacob and wait till you're about to die to put your hands on people and bless them. Bless folks while you're living, and bless folks while you have much life to give. So when you give somebody a hug or a side hug or a handshake or an embrace, let them know you're blessed of God. And I'm praying that the Lord would look after you. That's important. And then if you find somebody who says to you, oh, pastor, pray for me like they did in that Bible. And and I, I just want a mighty power of the Holy Ghost to come upon me. Then pray for them. I don't care if you're in the grocery aisle. I mean, if you're in the bank and they ask for prayer, pray for them in the bank. Now, now get your withdrawal out first, but then you go ahead and pray for them. We pray for them. I still remember when that man from Haiti laid hands on me. He said, oh, have you been filled with the Holy Spirit yet? I said, I've been praying. I've been praying, but it just, just hadn't got through there yet. He said, I can pray for you right now if we just pull up a chair. I said, man, get that chair up here right now. And he stretched out his hands, and I'm telling you, he placed them on my head, and the mighty power of the Holy Ghost exploded out of his fingertips and just permeated my my nervous system, having gone down through this cranium. And before I knew it, the power of God was all over me. I was vibrating with it. And just like Acts chapter 2, God moved in powers and wonders as he gave me divine utterance. Use your hands, use your mouth. Then the fourth thing, the purpose of God's anointing in your life is going to be revealed through your various experiences. If you want to see what God's going to do for you and how he's going to use you, put yourself in a position where you can be used. Yeah. There are a whole lot of bus drivers say, God, give me a, a healing ministry. But if you want a healing ministry, put yourself in a position where you're praying for people. And then God will use you in that way. But you got to get your hands off the wheel and get your hands on people if you want God to do something great for you. So the anointing of God is released by how we position ourselves and release the life of God. There was a lady one time who had uh, wanted to be an evangelist, but it just didn't work out for her. Just the doors were closing. She didn't have the right temperament, wouldn't really take the time to pray and seek God. So she never had the right message. So when that didn't work out after a year or so or however long it was, she decided, well, maybe I'm called to be a pastor. Well, she took a church, had 30, 35 people. Several months later, had worked it down to five. Then she probably realized, well, maybe I'm not called to be a pastor. 
And so she moved to another state, got involved with a local church, started helping the pastor there. And before you know it, it was on her heart to go into the homes of people who, who, who didn't really clean up really well after themselves. And so she went and started helping them. And before you knew it, here comes this lady who owned the house. She's in the church. Then she went to another family. Then that family came into the church. She, she found a very poor area of town and had a lot of kids in that area that were just playing in the trash and, and clothed in a really, really bad way. But she started ministering to them. And before you know it, one by one, they're coming into that church. And I, I'm telling you, that church changed because of her outreaches and what she was doing. But she found out what she was anointed to do by being involved with this and being involved with that. You know, I, I watch a lot of young ministers run all around America trying to spend money, $200, $300, trying to learn how to take a video class on how to prophesy or trying to get somebody to lay hands on them to give them 50 years of ministry inside of six seconds through the laying on of hands. But folks, I'm going to tell you something right now. God's a sovereign and all-powerful God. He, he does select people for this or for that. And when he does it, either they have it or they don't. Either they have it or they don't. And ain't no sense in trying to duplicate this anointing and embarrassing God and embarrassing ourselves. You see, when we walk with him, he opens doors. Great things happen. There's no way anybody can ever impart to you 50 years of their wisdom in their life. You've got to get it the same way they got. You've got to live 50 years learning, failing, learning again, and walking with God. There's all kinds of blessings we can get from people. But I wish I had in my head what's in Phyllis's head. See, all the years of pastoring, preaching Christ, her and you, telling folks about the king all throughout the region. But the only way to get it, I've got to be able to come down that same road and tell folks about God. There's no shortcuts as much as we would like to find them. But if we walk with him, he'll do great and mighty things. Amen. Amen. How many of you know God's a great God? There's no doubt about it, folks. I'd rather be here with you than anywhere else. And just knowing him makes the difference to have his anointing, to have his power, to have his grace. Let's stand tonight. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Find me a song there, Mr. Will. And uh, just real quick, like, you know, the Bible.